All right, good morning. Just for the next four weeks, we're going to be in a, a class on, uh, on strong marriages. And uh, man, I just want to let you guys know, you know, that this is what we call an interlude quarter. What we try to do on interlude quarters is talk about something that's just relevant, something that is just, uh, and hopefully everything we do is relevant, but something that is, is something we really do struggle with, wrestle with today, something that's uh, relevant to our society. And we, t- we decided we talk about marriages uh, this quarter and there are a few things more intimidating to talk about, you know, when you get up and do a class than, than a, a title like Strong Marriages. Uh, but my wife is not in class today, and I can get away with a lot, um, probably. <laughs> I don't know, but uh, last night I was laying in bed, and I was just kind of going over some thoughts for class, trying to get things finished up, and, and uh, she said something to me, and she was talking to me, and I said, stop talking, I'm trying to do a class on Strong Marriages. <laughs> I, you know, <laughs> But uh, um, actually, uh, one thing I wanted to say, sort of a disclaimer at the beginning of this class, this can be the kind of class that um, can be uncomfortable to come to. Um, and I know that. This is going to be one of those classes that, man, I'm going to sit next to my husband and things going on and things maybe in the past and things like this. Oh, is he going to get up there and talk about how good his marriage is and how horrible me I am, you know? The truth is, um, all marriages are the same in that we, we have obstacles, struggles, um, and the point of this class is more about moving forward and glorifying God in marriage wherever you are in marriage. That's a lot of the point of what we're going to be looking at in this. Um, being deliberate about who you are. Um, and, and I think your marriage reflects a lot of relationships. It's not just a marriage. This is, this is also a lot of what we're going to talk about if it um, applies to any, any relationship. So let's go ahead and open with a, a prayer and, and we'll get into this. Uh, my God, I just, um, I want to come before you, and I ask God that um, uh, that our life and our doctrine and, and who we are as people is not something that will just be on our minds and our churches and our theology, um, uh, but our faith in you um, would reflect in grace and forgiveness and uh, seeing each other through the lens of Christ and I pray, God, that uh, we would see marriage as it is in this world, as you gave it to us, and not maybe what we've turned it into. I uh, want to glorify you in our relationships, and especially in our homes and our marriages. Protect our homes. In the name of Christ, we come before you. Amen. Um, I mentioned in my prayer uh, that a lot of this has to do with kind of the lens through which we see uh, one another in marriage. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about my marriage in class, but, but not a whole lot. I really just want to focus on marriages that I've looked up to over the years. And, and um, I don't know how long some of the people in this room have been married. I've been married uh, 21 years um, now. And uh, for a lot of you, it's, it's, that's crazy for me to look back and say, 20, 21 years. This is, this is nuts, man. I, and... Um, how much we've changed over time and our relationship has even changed over time and things like that. But uh, a good example of what I'm talking about when I talk about looking at each other through lenses, and I've shared this here before, but uh, um, I don't know if you've ever gone on a mission trip, and I've, I've taken a lot of youth groups on different mission trips to different places. And, and one thing that I always thought was really interesting in doing that is... Um, You'd be sitting there at home in your home congregation, and you could be sitting there thinking, man, this is dead. Worship here is dead. The Spirit of God's not in this place. You know the complaining and the talk that people do when it comes to church, especially in the West. 
and, and, and we talk that way. And then you'd take the same group and you'd go down into Bolivia or you'd go down into a different country and the singing was awful. And the congregation looked like it was dying and there's only like 15 people meeting in the room and nothing is pulling together and they walk out of the place saying what? Wow, this is amazing. Those people are beautiful. What happened from America to there? You know, you could sit there and you could say, um, and I'm going to tie this into marriage here in a second, but you could sit there and say, man, and I grew up in a church where we had to wear a tie, you know, and my mom would comb my hair. I, yeah, there's pictures I'm hiding from all of you of what that looked like. But but all of this, and you would dress a certain way, and people were like, oh, we hate this. I hate that I have to dress a certain way because this is the culture. And then you go over to Uganda, or you go into some place and say, hey, man, they, they don't wear shirts here, and they don't wear shoes when they go to church. Is that cool with everybody? Yeah! And they take off you know, their shirt. I'm ready to go, you know? Something happens in our lens when we think missionally, you know, when we go to a place and we think, I'm on mission and I'm in love with people and these are God's people and you fall in love with this. But when we're at home, sometimes we don't see through that lens. We don't think through that lens. And that's a lot of what happens in a lot of our relationships and marriage and a lot of these things is um, there are things that you could have gotten away with when you were dating that you don't get away with when you're older. There's things that you see through a completely different lens once you've been married for a while. I met my wife, um, Lubbock, Texas, um, 21, well, no, no, it was way longer than that I, because we dated off and on forever. Um, I broke up with her four times. Um, and uh, I, I guess it was about 26 years ago or something like that that uh, we started dating and... and um, I met her, Larry and Jeanette had brought her um, to Lubbock, and I had the most awkward encounter with my mother-in-law that you can ever imagine. Um, you know how you say stupid things when you're nervous? Um, we were in a church, and the preacher asked us to, to all the kids, all the college students, I want you to spread out and stand on that wall, the guys, or you, this half stand on that wall. Now I want you to go sit with somebody you don't know. And so we were all supposed to disperse and go throughout the church and sit with people we didn't know. And I obeyed the rules, and Melinda did not. And I see this lady, and I say, I'm going to go sit next to this sweet lady over here. And then I see Melinda making a beeline for me. And I'm thinking, this girl likes me. (laughs) And wow, she's aggressive. And she just came and sat right next to me. And I'm like, well, we're supposed to sit next to somebody you don't know. And this girl just, And I had sat between she and her mom, and she was coming to sit next to her mom. And here I am sitting in the middle, and I don't know this. And as soon as I realized the situation, because I already have this attraction to Melinda, uh, 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 as soon as I realized the situation, I get super nervous. And I ask my mother-in-law now, I ask her, well, tell me where you're from. And she says, New Mexico. And I honestly said this. I said, you speak English very good. (laughs) And I did not say very well. I said, you speak English very good. I know I said that. And and this was the awkward thing. And she said, thank you. I'm an English teacher. (laughs) And New Mexico is part of the United States. So I don't know if I'm more discouraged with your English or your geography. But... but, (laughs) Uh, but it, that was my awkward encounter. But I remember just seeing Melinda, and, and I remember she dropped a receipt. And I will never, and I said, ooh, it's my chance. I you know, pick this up for her, and I want to get to know this girl, you know. 
And, and it's crazy how those things, the adventure of marriage, you know, the, the, the adventure of dating, where every little thing, everything you say, hey, should I answer this call? Should I not answer this call? Should I do this? And you're so nervous and you're, you're it's an adventure and the adrenaline's always going. And then you're married for 10 years and she drops her receipt and she's just a klutz. You know, it's, 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 it's gone, that adventure aspect of it, you know, when it starts to fade away and you're like, that's the main thing, in my opinion, that we somehow need to restore in our lives, whether it's church, marriage, whatever it is, is adventure. We crave adventure. We love adventure. We want what's new. We want this growth. You know, we want this kind of a thing. I'm going to get in some texts today, but I'm going to tell you one of the frustrations I had in preparing for this class. Uh, and I'm just going to ask you the question I was wrestling with. Man, the Bible's a big book, right? I mean, it's, that's, that's a pretty big book. There's a lot in it. Tell me all of the examples of strong marriage in the Bible. Man, where are they? Priscilla and Aquila, it's so funny you said that because that's one of the ones I thought of. It is like, we know nothing about their marriage except that they're mentioned together, but at least they got that far, which is farther than most marriages in the Bible. Um, <laughs> what else? Yeah. All right. Got this. Say, hey, listen, you're going to do what I say, uh, you know, but, but absolutely, as for me and my family, the, okay, the leadership, though, that's good. Yeah. Abraham and Sarah. Man, I, I, I uh, yeah, I think Abraham and Sarah is a great example. Um, on a biblical standard, I mean, he does lie about his wife and say, hey, listen, I'm going to give her to the king of Egypt and, and all of that, uh, which in today's standards would be a little awkward in a marriage. But back then... Um, Listen, this is about as high as the standard's getting. Is Abraham and Sarah, what else? Anything else? Ruth and Boaz, that is the one I wanted so bad, and you're correct, that it seems like all of the strong marriages, somebody dies right away. <laughs> and, and, and that is a good example, but someone does die right away, yeah. I like Elkanah and Hannah. Okay. Yes. So I do think we, so is there a story of like, they got married and this is what their honeymoon was like and right. they didn't argue about finances? Probably not. Right. I think there are a lot of different things. Men and women in a marriage relationship but dealing with each other probably the way God Right. There are some beautiful examples of interactions in marriages. But as far as getting that story, as far as really sitting down and saying, here is the story of a love relationship from beginning to end that didn't have major calamity in it. Man, that's hard to find. Most marriages in the Bible, there are, there's polygamy, there's affairs, there's death, there's killing, there's lying, there's all kinds of things. And that's one of the things that I love about the Bible. The Bible is not a book to sit here and say, and that's not what this class is. It's not a book to say, listen, this is righteousness. These are all of my righteous people. You sinners be like them. It really doesn't do that. The Bible says this is the reality of what history has shown. This is the reality of what happens in marriages in, in, in tough circumstances. And you see the heroes of the Bible, David, Noah, all of these men that you look up to, and it's the same thing. You, 
are the story of righteousness that I'm supposed to look to? And, and you don't really see huge examples of it. You certainly see some. But you don't see major examples of heroes in the Bible that don't fall. And you don't see major examples, not major ones, of marriages in the Bible that don't really struggle and suffer. Um, and, and that's one of the things that uh, is crazy to me. Um, I think about it like uh, college roommates. Anybody remember back in college, did you, did you room with a close friend? Have you ever done that before? And then what happens to your relationship afterwards? As soon as you room, even with your best friend, all of a sudden it's like, I don't like you anymore. Man, it's hard even to room with somebody for a quarter, okay? Just, just for a year. And then you want to commit your life to living with this person. And we're going to live in the same house. And things are going to... How is this going to look? Man, it's tough. It, it, it is. But I, um, I want to share some things with you. And, and, uh, and we're going to get into Ephesians 5 in just a moment. I'm going to get, kind of start in, in, in that verse. But I wanted to um, share this verse with you. And just, just think about this. Proverbs 5.18. May your fountain be blessed. And may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. And it's crazy to me. Um, 21 years later. And, and I, I read a, a, a parts of a book. I kind of sc- scanned a book uh, by Fawn Weaver um, uh, that, that has some beautiful quotes about what I'm about to share with you that really reinforced what I wanted to tell you. I think it's important that we know today that a healthy and prosperous and beautiful and joyful marriage is extremely possible in God. It is. Um, it's not always that way. It's sometimes it can be a struggle, but it's something that, that when I was young, when I thought about marriage, I was so convinced that, man, you know what? You go into it and, and the romance just, just wanes over time. It just, it just goes away. And it's more about keeping that covenant and staying together. One older guy told me uh, one time, he just said, Jeff, I've been, been married. I can't remember how many years he's been married. I haven't loved my wife for 20 years. But I stayed together with her because God told me to. He told me. I love it that some of your mouths are hanging open. That's good. And I, I said, it, 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 he's, he was an older man, and I wanted to show respect. But I said, it also commands you to, to love her. Doesn't it? You know, that's also part of the command. And so maybe we need to step back and think about what love is and what love looks like. When I decided I was going to marry my wife, um, I sat in a a park that was very special to me where I would go and sit and pray. And I held an engagement ring and I prayed over our marriage um, for the better part of a day. And I prayed over what would happen um, throughout my marriage prayed over the obstacles. I prayed over, you know, what I'd be facing. Um, I was really blessed that uh, the night before my marriage, all my groomsmen were there. And uh, most of my groomsmen that lived in Ecuador with me. And it's a tradition in Ecuador that you would um, take the groom the night before the wedding and take all of his clothes off and throw them in a fountain and leave him there. That's a tradition in Ecuador. And... They had done that to me before, just for no reason at all. So that is something I have experienced, and that's a different story. But the night before my wedding, they came and kidnapped me. And they got me, and it was the most beautiful thing. 
they took me to the church building and surrounded me on the stage, and they, they had a prayer vigil over me. Uh, they, these guys were missionaries, you know, and they had a prayer vigil over me and, and my marriage, and it, it means the world to me that they did that for me. And from the earliest time, my marriage to me has been um, the most important stage for which I sing a praise to my God. I glorify God on the stage. Um, but I failed a lot, and most of us know what that is, where you sit there and you just really feel like you've let God down, I've let Melinda down, I've, I've struggled with this. Um, in Jewish culture, I should have asked Steve to bring his, because he has a really cool one of these uh, prayer shawls. Um, in Jewish culture, that prayer shawl, to the earliest times, and, and certainly when Jesus was elected, it represents the law. And you would cover yourself with the prayer shawl, and it's called tenting yourself. And you go before God, and you're, you're em, enveloped with the law. And so I come to God almost as through the law. In fact, there's five knots on all of the ends of, of these, these. They're called tzitzit um, that represent the Torah. And you would come in prayer, and this is your private place where it's you and God. A sacred place where only God knows your heart and you stand before him. And that's what this represents, my private place, closeting myself. In fact, it's probably what Jesus was referencing when he said go in the closet. He used the same word. It's this idea that I'm coming before this God. Did you know that in a Jewish wedding ceremony, how about this? Still today they do this. You take your prayer shawl that's your private sacred world of prayer and you wrap that around your wife. And what that means in saying, I'm bringing you into the most sacred place, man. I'm bringing you into my world, into my relationship with God. And this is all one thing that I'm lifting up before you. And that's the beauty of, of kind of what marriage is through all the different ceremonies that we do. But today, um, one of my favorite things to do is sit down and talk to a husband and wife. Well, uh, people that are engaged to be married. And talk about what their marriage is going to look like. And we talk about a lot of these things. And we pray about a lot of these things. But you know what you really emphasize in weddings today? More than anything else? The dress. The balloons. Um, the wedding day. That's the big deal. You know, it's exciting. And, and how many fights have I seen on the wedding day? Or the night before the wedding day? One time a groom comes to me and he says... Uh, man, we're in a bad fight right now. And they were really fighting. And you know, they were in a bad fight about what color the M&Ms were going to be that were on the tables. I'm not, I'm, they were fighting over whether the blue and the purple were going to be mixed or in separate bowls. And I pulled the groom aside and I said, I'm just going to give you one advice. I'm just going to give you a little bit of advice. This is not advice for tomorrow. This is advice for life. You don't care what color those M&Ms are on that table, man. In fact, you do care. It's whatever she says, man, that's the right choice, brother. But you are not going to fight about M&Ms right now. And it, it, it's funny, but it's one of those things that you step back and you say, are you serious? This is what's happening. This is what's going on. And this is what's happened in our marriage. We're fighting about stuff like this. Um, and God does intend marriage to be so much more. So let's get into the text real quick. And um, uh, this is Ephesians 5.22. Wives... Submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he's the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands 
in everything. Uh, those verses that I just read are some of the most uncomfortable verses for people to read. These are verses people hate in the Bible. Now I want to ask you, I'm going to have a little bit of open dialogue here. Why do you think that is? Yeah. Right. Yeah, what kind of chauvinistic text is this? I don't submit to anybody. I'm sure not going to submit to submit to this man, right, in my life. I mean, that's what's going on. We have a lot of this. I have a problem with submission. And what we miss is the second part of this verse. Check this out. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Gave himself up. You realize that it just said the exact same thing? In fact, I can't remember right now. It's not coming to me. It's either the verse right after this or the verse right before this. I think it's the one right after this that says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Talking about just relationships in general, the idea is not, I'm the man, you're the wife, submit to me. That's not what this text is teaching, and people have heard it that way. This text is teaching, I'm the man, you're the woman, submit to me. I'm also going to submit to you. Because we are showing this world what all relationships need to be. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. I I want to yield, to. I want to serve you, I want to lay down my life for you. Um, uh, To me, that is one of the most important things that we understand in our marriage. I'm going to share with you... um, one of the greatest examples of marriage that I've seen uh, in my life, and um, his 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 name is Jim McGuigan, and I'm going to talk to you a little bit about him and why he became such a hero in my life. Go ahead, Chuck. Uh, while we're talking about submission, uh, one thing that crossed my mind is that we have a wonderful opportunity of learning to submit to one another. Yeah. And I say it's a wonderful opportunity because we've got to submit to God. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I th- I think this this aspect of humility just in our lives is very difficult for us as Westerners, and I say Westerners, American, my culture. It's hard for me to get understanding humility, understanding submission, understanding that nature, um, and it has impacted my relationships in the church in the past. Every hurt relationships that I've, that I've had that I can ever think of was rooted in my pride and their pride. Pride got hurt. Um, not putting myself at their feet. And when I was a new Christian, I'm going to go to Nicole here in a second. When I was a new Christian, I would not have come into a church and fought with people and spoken the way I spoke. I would never have done that. It didn't take until I felt like I was more mature in Christ that I would fight with people that way. Uh, it took it took that happening in my life for me to lose sight of who I was. And I think that that's why it's important to visit other cultures, to get outside of our bubble, to remind ourselves what it is to represent the name Christ in our marriages and our relationships. Yeah, go. Right. Yes. Uh-huh. I totally agree with that. I want to, in fact, I want to go back to that because I think there's so much weight in those words. Go ahead, David. I think people that do go to the Bible made a really tragic mistake in the 
Right. Right. Yes. Yes. Absolutely, and I think that that's probably the major point that I wanted to emphasize at the beginning of the series is I'm, I'm positive David is right in what he said in looking at this verse. It is saying submit to one another. In fact, that's exactly what it said. But that's what marriage is. That's really what it comes down to. I want to go to Nicole's point, talking about the strength that's in submission. Uh, Melinda gave me permission uh, this last week to get a puppy. Now, those of you who know us, yes, thank you. Those of you who know us know what a big deal this is. I've been wanting a puppy forever, okay? Finally, so just get me a puppy. Now, we had to agree on a small dog, so I'm getting a small dog. My last dog was a huge 120-pound lab, and I loved my lab because he was scared of nothing. He was scared of no dog, but he was gentle. And I remember a little dog attacked my dog one time, and he was hanging from his side by his teeth, growling. And my dog was like, love you, buddy. <laughs> and that's why I love labs. They're strong because they know who they are, and, they're will- and they don't have to put on that show. Little dogs, I've got- I'm going to have to train my little guy. Don't act all tough. Love, you know, love people. But, it- <laughs> but it's don't act all tough. You need to. But that's what goes to Nicole's point. There is strength in being able to submit. There is strength in being able to say, listen, um, uh, I'm going to put you first because I know who I am. I'm going to put other people above me because I've recognized what Christ has done in my life. When Christ came, he came as that incredible servant that put himself at people's feet, that washed feet, that this is what he did as an illustration of marriage. But more importantly, here's the crazy deep question. Why did God give us marriage in the first place? Why on earth? And I mean, from the opening of the book, Genesis, why didn't God just say, y'all go date each other. If it doesn't work out, move on. Why did he even institute this idea of, listen, you've got to make a decision and then you got to stick with it. And it's, it's like the most important decision you're going to make in your life, but you're called to stick with it, no matter what happens. 
Why would he even do that? Yeah. Right. Um, we did a, a class last year called Shadowlands. And uh, the idea of the class was to show that so many things in Scripture were intended to reflect a greater reality that was going to be in Christ. And so many things in our own lives, whether it's our marriage, our relationship with our parents, God gave us all of this. And he did it for a reason, and it's to show something that's higher. So my marriage, and this is what Ephesians is talking about, my marriage is intended to show this world, this is who God is. That's what my marriage is supposed to do. Well, the problem comes in our marriages. What, what ends up happening is, um, listen, it just doesn't look that way. You grow up with the movies and you grow up with the books and it's supposed to be a fairy tale and it's supposed to be happily ever after. And the listen, man, I want to do this, but my husband's not exactly the Romeo I see in the movies. My wife isn't exactly the girl that I... That's not what's happening. I want to share with you just something that an incredible hero of mine wrote. And before I read this, I've got, to, I've got to share with you who he is to me. Some of y'all know who Jim McGuigan is. And I want to tell you why he became... In fact, uh, um, I was just given this DVD, which is his book on Revelation. I listen to anything that Jim McGuigan does. I've read, I think, all of his books. Um, and I would get online, and I'm, I'm just going to play with you a snippet of, of this. He has these audio devotionals online. And so I would get up, and, and Tamara and I used to do this together at camps and stuff. We'd listen to Jim McGuigan in the mornings. And um, this is a snippet of, of Jim. And... When the day comes, I'll take what God gives me. And trust me, I'll be more than glad to get it. So he has that cool accent, and he's just, and sometimes that's why I speak with an Irish accent, because I want to be like him. But I, I share that with you because every day I would get up and, and listen to a devotional by Jim McGuigan. And he'd talk about his wife a lot. And his, his wife um, suffered with severe debilitating disease most of her life. And he writes this in a, the book, um, and I couldn't find my copy of it. I think I gave it to somebody, Celebrating the Wrath of God. Now, you're a bold man to write a book with a title like that. Okay, that already offends people just looking at that title. What are you talking about celebrating the wrath of God? Let me tell you, that's one of the best books you're going to read. And I would recommend that book to anybody. When Jim McGregan writes a book like Life on the Ash Heap, Celebrating the Wrath of God, and Books on Suffering, you're not reading somebody who just graduated college with an idealistic view of what the world... You're talking about somebody who knows suffering well. And he writes about what it has meant in his life and what he's had to struggle with. And I just want to share with you a little bit of what he wrote in this book. The night they betrayed him, Christ's followers had been arguing among themselves about who was the greatest and who would have the place of prominence in heaven. Christ must have watched them with those big dark eyes of his, listening to it all. Then after teaching them, he tells them they are the ones who stood by him in his trials. Luke twenty two twenty eight. How could he say that? How could he tell the truth and say that at the same time? Were they embarrassed by the generosity of his heart? Did they look at each other and shake their heads in humble disbelief? Were they ashamed of their own shabby thoughts? Did they feel awkward and want to protest that such a charitable assessment was too grand for them? 
After what, after what we've been doing, you say that about us? Still, he said it and said it sincerely. He said it because behind all their shortcomings, the disciples had given him their hearts and meant to be to him, for him, all they, um, all they could be at that point. And no one can give more than all they have. Yeah, yeah, this is fine talk geared for the people who want to believe it. But out in the real world, isn't such noble talk without substance? Isn't it a flight from reality? Doesn't it ignore the stubborn facts of life? Good grief, no. In every generation, millions of people live this way. I'm married to one, Ethel. Ethel was the name of his wife, who has lived with chronic ill health since she was six, has endured scores of surgery, many of them major including three open-heart operations. She suffered cardiac arrest a number of times, experienced a couple of mild strokes, is diabetic, and has almost died on numerous occasions. As a result of a spinal bleed, she's paraplegic. And as the king of Siam would say, etc., 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 in Ethel, I see a life of brave and cheerful faith lived out before me day after day. And she's only one of multitudes. We had... A sustained period of stress not too long ago. I say we because Ethel's pain is my pain. You can't love as I love Ethel, as you love your own loved ones, without hurting when they hurt. In any case, there were endless infections. Three times we had to hospitalize her because they were threatening her life. She, was a she has a prosthetic heart valve and needs to be protected. And the antibiotics were creating intestinal tract chaos and endless accidents. The debris from these was eating up her skin, creating blisters, hacks, and raw flesh. She had spasms that came close to rigor mortis and that made it difficult for anyone to attend to her and keep the debris from getting back into her system. She was hot to touch, terribly swollen, and bone-weary from all this and too little sleep. It was tough on both of us. But one particular morning, I told myself I was really going to do a great job today. I'd be cheerful as well as patient, prompt as well as competent. We have these little um, intercom boxes in our house, and Ethel buzzes me when she needs me. I was up in the attic hitting the books when the buzz came. I almost floated down the stairs effortlessly. Got her bathed, changed, and settled, and skipped back up again. Once more, the soft buzzer and the voice apologizing for disturbing me. No problem. Down the stairs, the well-practiced routine. Happy? Yes. Back up the stairs. Six or seven times later, the voice not daring to apologize. The descent, a bit more retention, the job done, a long look. No, are you happy? Before heading up to the study. After about a dozen trips, study was impossible. All I could do was wait for that rasping sound, that strident, snarling, jarring, demanding, traumatizing buzzer, and the same tired, tired, timid Jim. By this time, I was thudding my way down the stairs instead of skipping. I dragged the door open and worked in silence, her tired eyes watching me, studying me, understanding me, being patient with me. Longing to help me, forgive me. Yes, especially forgiving me. Only now her legs had gone rigid. They wouldn't cooperate. The junk was eating on her flesh and finding its way into her system. It can't be left. 
I was sweating with exertion, but her legs wouldn't cooperate and I couldn't take care of it. My frustration mounted. I stepped away from the bed with a look, silently asking this helpless woman to do something, even though I knew there was absolutely nothing she could do. I turned to the wall and yelled a long, vehement protest, a lancing of painful wound in my mind. I turned back to the bed, wordlessly appealing, sweat running down my face, feeling I must be a doctor when I'm not a doctor, suffocating in helplessness, wanting to storm out of the room that was like a torture chamber for both of us. She watched me in silence with a long, steady gaze, feeling my pain, this poor, sick, worn-out girl. Then she began to move her arms as though she were marching, and glancing at her rigid legs that had defied uh, my brute strength, she began to sing, I shall not be, I shall not be moved to the town, to the tune of We Shall Overcome. That did it. I picked up a pillow and gave her a good beating. <laughs> we laughed a bit, held, held each other for a while, and got back to work. Story, stories like this are commonplace. It's hard to overestimate the wickedness, selfishness, and cowardice in the world. But it's easy to underestimate the gallant good that's there. There are brave, patient, cheerful people who, by God's grace, live that way because they believe God is counting on them to fight this fight for him against the forces of cynicism, darkness, and despair in the wilderness of a world. But such bravery is really only savored when you have a breathing space. It's appealing as it flashes by on a movie screen or on a verbal images where it's painless and merciful mercifully brief, the cold hard fact is that God, who could put a stop to it with the breath of a thought, watches the suffering go on. Whatever else we say to a God like that, to endlessly croon uh, romantic ballads about him as though he were a heavenly sweetheart is pathetic. Such a view of God not only ignores scripture, it, it offends the millions who are beside themselves in pain or loneliness or soul-crushing depression. Um, he just goes on and says, I won't read all of this, but he says this, listen, it's never our body that's under attack. It's our life before God that's under attack. Uh, I, read, I read that, and I, it's a long reading, but I wanted to share that with you before I played just this quick snippet from, uh, from him. The reason he became my hero is not because he's an incredible scholar, and he is. Jim McGuigan was one of the greatest scholars that I, I got to study, and I respected him because, mostly because of his marriage. Because of, I saw the way he glorified God through real pain, showing what love is. When his wife died, I was scared that he wasn't going to put up any more audio. Because he's been putting up audio for years, and I listened to his messages, and they're the most incredible devotional thoughts. And then after about six months, he puts up this audio message. And I was so excited, Jim's reposting. And you can imagine the look on my face when this is what I hear. Okay, he can't sing that well, but, man, he's got heart. And, and I was just in tears. I was sitting there listening to this man who does these devotional thoughts, lift up his heart before his wife, before, before this world, and say, I just said goodbye to my wife. And I walked through this world, and I showed this world what love is. Listen, it was not the romantic movie that you expected it to be. 
I was taking care of a woman that couldn't control her body anymore. And that's what God designed marriage to be. Um, I am not, I was never the movie guy, you know, the guy that a girl would look and dream about. But I'm certainly not today. And it's, it's, I know that I'm not that husband, but she lays down her life for me. And I pray that I lay down my life for her. And in this world, I'm just saying this, I, I hope I, I get my heart, just like I hope I get your heart in this class uh, in, in the coming weeks and what we're going to talk about. But in a, a world right now that considers religion and considers church and they think it's absurd and they think it's ridiculous, um, the main form God gave us to show this world who he is, what love is, what religion is, is our marriages. This is like the most foundational thing. The way we raise our kids. The kind of children we are before him. And the point is, and I'm going to close this in a prayer, but the, the point isn't that you would look at your marriage in this class and say, well, I guess I'm a failure. Listen, we all feel that way. Okay? Please know that. I guess I'm a failure. I feel that way too. We've made a lot of mistakes. A lot of us in this room, broken marriages. We've been through it all. Um, dark moments, okay? But the point isn't that I'm going to go through life without those things. The Bible doesn't represent those stories either. The point is that I'm going to go through all of that and at the end pick myself up and say, how would God love his church right now? This is what I'm going to do right now and from this point forward, and I'm going to keep carrying myself that way. And she's going to do that for me. I think it was a big mistake, and I... I'm just going to say this in this class because it's important to me. I've read a lot of books on marriage, a ridiculous amount of books on marriage, and the reason why is because I had to. Um, I got in a lot of trouble at school one time, and my assignment was to do a full book report on seven different books on marriage, I think it was. Uh, and I, I had to do that. I've read a lot of books. There's some horrible teaching in Christian books about marriage. I really do believe that. There is some horrible teaching even in Christian books. There's an idea that it's an exchange, and I have my needs, and you have your needs, and if you meet my needs, I have money in my bank to meet your needs. I know that you're familiar with some of that language I'm talking about. I'm going to tell you, I don't think that's a biblical view of marriage. I think a biblical view of marriage is Jim McGuigan, who has nothing coming into his bank. Nothing. And I'm going to pour myself out for you, even when you've got nothing. And I'm going to keep doing that because you are my worship to my God. Um, way beyond romantic. Something that is next level, godly love. And uh, I hope you're inspired. And I hope I'm inspired in my marriage um, going forward. I just want God to be glorified in the way I treat his daughter while we're on this earth. All right. Let's, uh, let's go ahead and go before our God in prayer. Uh, God, I know that um, this is so sensitive. And it is to me too. And I just pray, Father, that um, we'd only hear your voice. I pray that you would heal relationships that need healing and that you'd heal our mind and that you'd heal our vision. Uh, God, that we will not accept myths that are told in this world that people cannot change. That's a myth. That marriages cannot be beautiful. That's also a myth. I pray, God, that by your spirit you would, you would show this world uh, what true humility, submitting to one another out of reverence for you, looks like. 
And I ask God that in these classes that we would just represent that humble view. I pray that I would never exalt myself because you know better, that none of us would. Uh, But as a family, we would just go through this together, bear one another's burdens, feel each other's pain, and exalt you by showing people what real love looks like. Uh, Love you, Father. It's in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.